I'm going to read for us our text for today's sermon. It's probably not going to surprise you that I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Hopefully most of you are aware that we have been, for the last couple of months, doing a survey of sorts of the book of 1 Timothy. And um, in my attempt just to find a good pace to go through that book, we've been covering a chapter a week in Sunday school. But I think those types of surveys are very good for the study of the church. But of course, there's one obvious pitfall, and that is there's so many texts that just deserve so much more consideration. And that's what we have today, I believe, in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, beginning in verse 12, I'm going to read through verse 16. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. The Word of God says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me, because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost... Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Let's pray. Well, Father, this text is indeed a text to be returned to, Lord, a text to be reminded of, a text to be considered, Lord, more deeply. And so, Father, I pray that you would bless, that you would honor the teaching, the preaching of your word today, Lord, bless every soul in this room. Let us leave this place more edified, Lord, more thankful, Lord, for our salvations, for the grace that you showed us, for the abundant grace that you showed each and every one of us who are in Christ today, Lord. Please help us to appreciate and to be as thankful for this as we ought, as thankful as the apostle Paul was for the grace that he was shown And Lord, as as we, by your grace, are here to be edified, Lord, I just want to pray for our brother Marshall, who, um, with his health health issues, had to leave. Lord, I pray mercy on his body, Lord. I pray that you would bless him, Lord, that he, even in the time he was here for Sunday school, Lord, was given things that would nourish his soul, that would strengthen him, Lord. He does need strengthening, Lord, and you, as we'll see, provide that for us. You provided it for Paul. You provide it for us. Lord, your grace is sufficient, Lord. Even now, through Paula, Lord, even through Martha, Lord, remind Brother Marshall that your grace is sufficient. Lord, help them to hold him up. And we thank you, Lord, for his faith. We thank you for his willingness to drive, Lord, from Fort Worth every Sunday, despite feeling horrible, Lord. What, a, what an example for all of us, Lord, as, as, a, as someone who so desires to hear the word of God that he would drive that far. Lord, so bless him for his faithfulness, Lord. Bless him even now, and bless us as we open up our Bibles. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Well, we're here in 1 Timothy, uh, picking up in verse 12, and so... 
the context, of course, for our passage is the first 11 verses of the book of 1 Timothy. And as hopefully most of you are familiar, um, the Apostle Paul has jumped right out of the gate in the uh, book of 1 Timothy to warn young Timothy concerning a problem in his church. And the problem is false teaching, uh, specifically false teachers who are rising up in Timothy's church and leading the people astray. Paul, in verse 4 of 1 Timothy chapter 1, refers to their errors as being mere myths, as being, as Paul says, endless genealogies. In chapter 4, he, he refers to these teachings as worldly fables fit only for old women. But what's so interesting about these erroneous teachings is that in some way, these false teachers were associating their teachings with the actual word of God. They were associating their teachings as, with the actual word of God, which Paul refers to in verse 7 as the law. The law. Now, these men were obviously abusing the law of God. They were obviously distorting the law of God. But Paul is not fooled. Paul knows uh, what God's intent was behind the law. God's law was to be a schoolmaster. It was, be, it was to be a tutor. It was to show us our sin, and it was to lead us to Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul himself had, pers had personally had the law of God perform its proper and its meticulous surgical-like work on his own heart personally. The Apostle Paul had had this work done in his heart to such an extent he had been humbled by God's law to such an extent that he can say in verse 15 of our text that he is the foremost of sinners, that he is the chief of all sinners. The law had certainly shown Paul his great need for the Savior, and because the law has this function, because the law had done this work in Paul's heart, the Apostle Paul could say that the law of God, being confronted with God's law, being confronted with God's holiness, is actually all according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. The law is, is certainly an aspect of the good news of the gospel message and as we know, the Apostle Paul is always very certain, always very careful to make sure that there's no con con confusion on this point that the law of God does not save. The law of God does not save. No, God, by his grace and by his mercy, saves sinners through the work of Christ. And that's what the Apostle Paul is going on to expound in our text. So as Paul goes on to describe this grace, to describe this mercy of God, as we're going to see, uh, we can divide Paul's ongoing thoughts into three sections, into three parts, if you will. Verse 12, we're going to see that this calling, this saving grace, includes a call to service. It includes a call to service. Secondly, in verses 13 and 14, we're going to see the Apostle Paul recognize what he calls is the abundance of grace, the abundance of grace that accompanies our salvations. And then lastly, in verses 15 and 16, we're actually going to see the purpose behind, behind God's desire to save the Apostle Paul, and I believe, uh, subsequ subsequently, God's purpose is behind saving each and one of us as well. So let's first dive in here to the fact that God's calling of salvation brings with it a calling to service. Look again at verse 12. The Apostle Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me, 
Because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Putting me into service. So first things first for the Apostle Paul, we see here what is the good and what is the proper response to the saving grace of God, and that is thankfulness. Thankfulness. Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord. I couldn't help and think about how, um, how horribly atrocious it was for one of those ten lepers to return to Jesus to give thanks for the cleansing that they had received. If you remember that from Luke chapter 17, where just one of those ten had returned to give thanks for the cleansing. And as you think about that cleansing and to the extent that that cleansing was a, an outward cleansing of a disease, in that even that one was willing to give thanks, how much greater, brothers and sisters, should our thanksgiving be to God for the cleansing that we have received? Because we have received a much greater cleansing than being cleansed from leprosy. We've received, as we've seen in Hebrews, the, the cleansing of our consciousness, or the cleansing of our consciences. Um, we have a cleansing from sin that should lead us to thankfulness. The first thought in the apostle's mind is thankfulness. But what is Paul specifically thankful for? Well, he says here that he's thankful for a strengthening grace, a strengthening grace that he's received from Christ. He says here uh, that he was strengthened. And so this word translated strengthened is in the aorist tense, which lets us know that the Apostle Paul is referring to a strengthening from the past. And I can't help but assume, and the commentators agree, that the Apostle Paul is referring to that amazing strengthening that he received to what had to be the weakest point of his life. If you think back to the story of the Apostle Paul's conversion, there he was in the city of Damascus, sitting in the corner of some back room on, on, the, on, on Straight Street, Acts tells us, probably there, as I can imagine, in the fetal position, still blind from Christ's visitation to him, his entire theology, his entire worldview has completely been shattered by Christ's revelation. And then this man named Ananias is sent to him by the Lord. The text tells us that he was filled with the Holy Spirit, that the scales fell from his eyes, and that immediately, Acts chapter 9, verse 20 tells us that he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Now that's a strengthening. That's some strengthening. That's some grace. Now, I'm not sure if you caught it as I just read over the text, but in verse, thir thir uh, verse 12, he said that the Lord strengthened him because he considered him faithful. Now, that certainly sounds awkward to me, that, that Paul says he was strengthened because he was faithful. Um, it, it's also interesting because as we read this whole text, you probably noticed that the whole thrust of the passage is how unfaithful the Apostle Paul was, how sinful he actually was. So it, it seems strange that he uses that language. And as, as early as the fourth century, um, Augustine was already trying to clarify this phrase by uh, stating the truth that he knows from the rest of Scripture, that he said, God does not choose anyone who is worthy, but in choosing him renders him worthy. You see, and I think Augustine was on to something because the Apostle Paul himself clarifies um, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 what is the foundation for his faithfulness. 
There, as in chapter 7, he's discussing in one, one aspect of how he's able to speak for God. Um, Jesus had not um, specifically given any commands concerning virgins, but he was able to speak on this topic, and there we see the foundation for his faithfulness. There he said, Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is faithful. So by the mercy of the Lord, Paul says, he was faithful. So we know that Paul did not uh, think that faithfulness is what merited his calling, but he certainly did know that the faithfulness that was given to him was for a purpose. It was for a use. It was for, as he says, a, surf, uh, a service. At the end of verse 12, he said, the Lord who strengthened me, he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Putting me into service. Paul did not receive his strength. Paul did not receive his faithfulness in vain either. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, Paul said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Therefore, qualifying again his, his, the foundation of his faithfulness, he says, and his grace towards me did not prove in vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God within me. See, Paul took this grace, this strengthening that God had imparted to him at his salvation and fully spent it to his last breath in the service for the Lord. And I think certainly that's one way in which Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, where he says, to imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's certainly one way that we should be imitators of the great apostle Paul, to take all of the grace that we've been given in our callings to spend our lives in, uh, for the sake of our Savior. But just in the same way, brothers and sisters, that Paul's salvation came with a calling to service and the strength to go with it, so does our salvation's. And I think what generally is the question in people's mind a lot of the time is, how can I know what God's calling is for my life? What is it that I need to be using this grace and this strengthening that God has given me for? How am I to, where am I to be expending all of this grace and energy? Well, I just thought that a good place to start is where the Apostle Paul starts. If you want to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul lays down a good principle for you on where to start expending the grace that God has given you. Because in one sense, you can know what your calling is, or at least one, one aspect of your calling, is simply by recognizing the place that God has you in when he calls you. And it's in this place that you are right now that you should seek to glorify God and in whatever your circumstance is. Like if you notice in verses 17 and 18, Paul said, only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. So whatever circumstance you're in there, uh, wherever God has called you, right there, walk. Walk and serve God in that calling. Paul says, I direct this in all the churches. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? Well, he's not to be circumcised. Serve God right where you are. He goes on in verse 21. This is a convicting one. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it, the apostle Paul says. Do not worry about it. In other words, glorify God in your slavery. 
1 Corinthians 7.27, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Now, we know that Paul does, in fact, even in this very chapter, give liberty to uh, become a freed man, to be released from slavery if you have the opportunity. He gives the liberty to be married if you need to be married. But the point in this section, and the main focus, is to live out the calling of God that you have presently right now as a Christian. Don't, don't seek to shake off the providence of God in your life. Glorify him in whatever, whatever circumstance, no matter how difficult it is, seek to glorify him in that. And what you may need to hear uh, for your difficult calling is you need to not doubt the ability of the spirit within you to strengthen you for this work. Um, this is exactly why the Apostle Paul is writing this whole passage to Timothy, is to encourage him, is to remind him that the Lord has called him to his work. And if you remember, as we've talked about in Sunday school, what Timothy's work was, it's a very difficult calling. A young man being put amongst older men who are teaching uh, falsehoods in the church. But Paul's in trying to encourage young Timothy, saying, God is with you. Trust him. Walk by faith. Expend yourself by the grace of God in your calling. Now, all of our callings, we know, brothers and sisters, are different. Um, but the spirit that is in us uh, is not different. The spirit that is in us is not different. The same spirit that was in the Apostle Paul, brothers and sisters, is the exact same Holy Spirit who was in you, if you're a believer. And dare I remind you that the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same spirit that is in you if you are a believer. So pursue God by the power of the spirit that is in you, trusting that God will honor your faithfulness because he will. Now, we all have difficulties that come with our callings. We all have different callings. We all have different difficulties that come with our callings. So I think um, as we all feel the weight of our different callings, of, of the difficulties that come with them. Let's look now to verse 13. Because in verse 13, the Apostle Paul is going to go on to encourage us in our willingness to, to fulfill whatever service the Lord has called us to. Um, because here we see Paul recognizing the abundance of grace that is yours. The abundance of grace. Um, at the, in the second part of verse 12, he said, "...considered me faithful, putting me into service." Verse 13, "...even though..." I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Why did the Apostle Paul need grace? Why did the Apostle Paul need an abundance of grace? because he was formerly a blasphemer. He was formerly a persecutor. He was formerly a violent aggressor. Now, I'm sure most of you are familiar with the account of Stephen Stoning and how the Apostle Paul stood by there approving of the murder. But if you want to turn over to Acts chapter 26 with me, in Acts chapter 26, um, the Apostle Paul gives his own testimony. He gives his own testimony of his own wickedness that was his life prior to God's abundant grace. Acts chapter 26, verses 9 through 11. 
There the apostle Paul says this, so then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. That's why the Apostle Paul needed grace, because he was wicked. And although he was very a wicked man, he, even though he sought the total destruction of the bride of Christ, he goes on in verse 13 to say, Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now, again, here's another statement that I think uh, requires some explanation because it sounds like what Paul is saying is that his ignorance somehow warranted or somehow merited God's mercy. But if you just think about it, if, if Paul, of anybody, if Paul teaches that not even our good works merit God's mercy and grace, then certainly our ignorance, certainly our unbelief, does not merit God's grace. So the question is, well, what then is Paul saying? What is, what is he saying exactly here? Well, I think the Apostle Paul is simply making a distinction between the different states of people's unbelief. Uh, the Apostle Paul, in some sense, was in ignorance. Uh, until being made aware of his misconception of Christ by Christ himself, Paul somehow was persecuting the church with a clear conscience. Somehow, um, he says uh, in Acts chapter 23, verse 1, there the apostle Paul is standing before the high priest in Jerusalem, and Paul says this, Paul, looking intently at the council, said, brethren, I have lived my whole life with a perfectly good conscience before God up until this day. That's strange. That's, that's a strange thing that Paul says there. But he was, in some sense, ignorant to whom Jesus Christ truly was. He was ignorant to who he was when he was persecuting him by persecuting his bride. Um, we actually just saw this category that Paul's raising here, this category of sins of ignorance in Hebrews chapter 9. I don't know if you remember that. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 7, there it said, But into the second holy place only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. So even under the old covenant, there was this recognition of this, just this differentiation of sin that was done in ignorance as opposed to what the Old Testament called a, a high-handed sin, a sin in direct rebellion to God, knowing that you were sinning, which um, Paul is just recognizing that, that category but all sin, I just want to say, even done in ignorance is still sin. That's why it still needed atonement. But there is a real differentiation to be made here. And I think the Apostle Paul is making this differentiation for a reason, for a very specific reason. Really, the point of this letter is that Paul knows that there's those who, who sin knowingly, who sin willfully, those who are in one sense on the verge of blaspheming the Holy Spirit in their willful sin, 
And those people are these who are in Timothy's church, these false teachers in Timothy's church. And Paul's making a differentiation between his ignorant sin and their willful, defiant sin against God. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, um, the apostle Paul there, if you notice how he speaks and describes these false teachers in Timothy's church, he describes them there as hypocritical liars, hypocritical liars who are seared in their own consciences as with a branding iron. See, these false teachers in Timothy's church, they actually know the truth. They actually know the truth and yet continue to propagate their lies, as Paul tells us later, for their own gain. But Paul's sins were, in a sense, in a different category. They were, they were slightly different in nature. But nonetheless, his sins were wicked. And Paul found, even in his wickedness, an abundance of grace. This one-time blasphemer, this one-time persecutor, this one-time violent aggressor, by the grace of God, had turned into the greatest Christian man that ever lived. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Uh, we, we, we are quick to qualify that all salvations are miraculous, and certainly they are. Uh, but the transition that God did in, in the heart of the Saul of Tarsus is something special, something undeniably special. And how abundant was this grace to the Apostle Paul? Well, in verse 14 there, back in our text, in chapter 1, he says that it is an abundant grace. It's, he says it's more than abundant, is what he says in verse 14. These words translated as more than abundant in our NASBs are uh, the translation of just one Greek word, actually, a Greek word that the Apostle Paul apparently coined. He apparently made up this word as he is um, known to do. And, and quite often what he does is he adds a prefix. He adds a word to the front of whatever words he's, he's describing to, in a sense, coin a new word. And here he's adding to the front of this word for abundance, he's adding the prefix hooper. Hooper, which is the word that we transliterate as hyper. So in, in essence, what he's saying is that he received a hyper grace, a, a more than abundant grace is how we, we, is how we translate this phrase. And so why would the Apostle Paul view grace in this sense? Why would he go so far as to invent a new word to describe God's grace? Well, as we look on in the text here, and as we see how the Apostle Paul actually understands the grace of God, and how he actually understands what the grace of God does, what the grace of God provides for us, what the grace of God comes with, we can see why he describes it as such. Because in verse 14 he says, The grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. See, with God's grace comes faith. With God's grace comes love for Christ Jesus. And so do we not have, brothers and sisters, another text here that affirms the fact that faith is a gift from God? I think that we do. We know that Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verse 8, for instance, says that faith is not of ourselves, it's a gift of God. We know that Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, said that it's been given to us to believe. We know that in the book of Romans, chapter 12, that it says, to each has been given a measure of faith, God distributing faith as he wills. 
And I think here we see the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14, that the grace of God comes with faith and love for Christ. That is abundant grace. That is abundant grace because, brothers and sisters, you once did not believe in Christ. You once were unable to believe in Christ. But as 1 Corinthians 1.30 tells us, but by his doing, you were put into Christ Jesus. And what is found in this union with Christ Jesus, Paul tells us, is faith and love. Our very faith and love for Christ is a result of God's grace. That is amazing grace. And this is what God does. God doesn't simply, as we've seen in Hebrews, he doesn't simply attempt to save sinners, but he saves them. Christ, by his cross work, has actually obtained eternal redemption, and with it, our faith. And this is the idea. Paul's just working towards the apex here of his discussion of God's grace, because lastly, we're going to see here the purpose of God's grace in Paul's salvation. What is the purpose of God's grace in Paul's salvation? And subsequently, I would say, our salvations as well. well verse 15, Paul says, It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. And yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. So here in verse 15, we have what is the first of Paul's um, trustworthy statements that are found in the Pauline or the pastoral epistles. Uh, these trustworthy statements are those statements that the Apostle Paul makes that he's saying are statements, are teachings that are to be accepted without question, without dissension. Everyone in the church of God is to accept these statements wholesale. And so therefore, we are to accept the statement that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, if you don't come to know anything else in your entire life, you need to know this, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The very gospel of God is summed up in these words because it, why is this good news to us? Well, it's good news to us because Jesus did not have to leave the glory of heaven, but he did. Jesus didn't have to save anyone, but he did. He did not especially have to save sinners, but he did. And for this, for us, is good news. This is why the world was here. The world is here so that Jesus Christ could come into it to save sinners. It's the purpose of all of creation. It's why everything was created. It's why everything is here so that Jesus Christ could save sinners. And every single soul here needs to accept this trustworthy statement. If you doubt this statement, if you reject this statement, well, you can know for certain one thing, that you are leaving yourself without any hope whatsoever of surviving the judgment that's to come when you die and when you stand before the Lord. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that is given to men by which we must be saved. There's no other name but Jesus Christ. And for those who doubt, those who are still rejecting this, 
How can we know for certain? How, do you want to know for certain? Well, Peter's answer to how we can know for certain, in Acts chapter 2, verse 32, Peter had said, This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. And therefore, based on that text, he says in verse 36 of Acts chapter 2, Therefore, based on the resurrection of the dead, therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. By the resurrection of the dead, this was, this was uh, God's affirmation of Christ's work on the cross to save sinners. Christ's sacrifice has surely been accepted in the heavenly temple. Um, as I said, if you don't come to know anything else, know that. There's nothing that I desire for anyone to know more than that. Um, based on that, I've attempted to take some of the pressure off my wife um, with homeschooling by telling her, if my children don't know anything else, let them know that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. I don't care if they learn to read or know what one plus one is. I do care, but comparatively, I want them to know about Christ. That is my utmost concern for them. So what's interesting is that in all of the countless multitudes of sinners that Jesus came to save by the cross, there was one sinner in particular who could lay claim to this label of being the greatest sinner of all. Because in verse 15, Paul said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Now, as we said before, God's law, God's law work had certainly done a work in Paul's heart. As the Apostle Paul considered God's holiness, as the Apostle Paul considered the laws that flow out from God's holiness, he, sur he surmised, I must be the foremost sinner of all. And what maybe do you think was the sin, maybe the sin of all of his sins that led him to this conclusion? Well, I have here 1 Corinthians 15, 9, where Paul thinks to himself, For I am least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. I persecuted the church of God. Paul, Saul, had spent the prime of his life persecuting the church of God, who Christ himself would later explain to Paul that by so doing, he was actually persecuting Christ himself. I know that I tremble at times as I remember some of the sins that I committed before being saved and things that I wish I could forget. I'm sure you have similar memories. But I bet that the Apostle Paul still remembered the faces of those Christians whom he persecuted, those Christian men and women who he dragged out of their houses to kill. I'm sure he could still hear the screams of the children who he tore away from his Christian parents, children who would never again see their parents. And all of that, just to think about this transformation that, that God's abundance grace did in the life of this man, that Paul went from being the very worst sinner in the world to the greatest Christian in the world is, is a, an unimaginable work. It's actually an amazing, amazing transition that God did for him. But Paul goes on. This is what's so interesting to me is that Paul keeps going. Paul goes on to tell Timothy here why God saved him in particular. Why did God save the chief of sinners? 
Verse 16 says, For this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. That statement has always intrigued me uh, that Paul says this, namely just this fact that he knows why God saved him in particular. And I think that's only interesting, I guess, if you, if you understand the doctrine of God's grace, if you know that God saves sinners based on his unconditional election, uh, just meaning that God doesn't save anyone because uh, we are in any way better than those whom he does not save, but the scripture definitely does teach you that in God's infinite wisdom, he has decided to ex extend his saving grace to some. And the question that is obviously begged by this reality is, well, if God didn't save me because of anything in me, if it, if it isn't because I'm in any way better than my neighbor, well, then why did God choose to save me and not my neighbor? Um, I know that I've asked that question about myself and my own election many times. But here Paul says that he knows the answer to why Christ saved him so that Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe. In other words, the Apostle Paul's salvation is an example. It's the ultimate example of how patient God is towards those whom he's going to save. Paul being the worst of sinners just like any one of us could have been taken out by God and judged at any moment of his life. But although Paul was actively being the worst sinner in the world, committing the worst sins of persecuting the church of God, God instead was patiently waiting to work out his sovereign providence and to, in his timing, bring the apostle Paul to himself. Paul's salvation is an example in that God saves even the worst sinners. And because you have most likely not spent the prime of your life killing Christians, and you are therefore no worse than the Apostle Paul whom God saved, God can therefore save you. Despite whatever horrible sins you have committed, despite your blasphemies, despite your violent aggression, God is able to save but how is God able to save? How, how is it that God would have been able to save the Hitlers of this world, the Pauls of this world? How is God able to justly forgive sinners like us? Well, he's able to save because he has provided for himself a substitutionary sacrifice, a sacrifice that, can, that is, is so great in worth that it's able to actually appease his wrath against the greatest of sins. And it's not the sacrifice of bulls and goats. It's the sacrifice of his very son. A sacrifice that will cleanse the sins of the worst sinners who repent. And the Apostle Paul is the shining example of this. I also think that Paul's salvation serves as an example in another way, in another sense. Because just as Paul's salvation was, in a sense, the ultimate example of God's saving grace and mercy, brothers and sisters, so too our salvations are examples of God's gracious salvation of sinners. The fact that God has saved sinners like us stands as real examples of what God's grace can do, just as Paul's salvation shows. 
And the salvations that we have, brothers and sisters, can be testified before the world. Our salvations can be testimonies of the grace of God to our friends, to our co-workers, to our, our family members. We can tell them that our God is still active. Our God is still willing to save. And we can show them how. And that he's still saving wicked sinners like us as examples of his willingness to save. So testify this, just as Paul did. Testify of, of God's willingness to save a wicked sinner as you. Now, we know that our experiences are not the gospel. Our experiences are not the gospel itself, but it's certainly because of the gospel that each and one of us are actually saved. And this is what we can explain to those around us. With the apostle Paul, we're leaving them no example or no uh, no excuse not to come to Christ. The, God has saved the worst. God has saved us. God still saves sinners. So just let me close by saying this, that just as this whole section of Scripture here was written in order to encourage Timothy in his calling, to remind Timothy of the abundant grace that is his, to encourage him to keep on in the calling, in the very difficult calling that Timothy had, um, all of us have been saved into likewise difficult callings in one way or another. And I just thought about some of those. I just thought about how some of us, by the grace of God, have been saved to raise children, to raise godly children. And if that's you, you are called to be thankful that you were saved in the first place and to raise those children to the glory of your Savior some of us have been saved to lives of struggling with health issues. Well, glorify God in that calling, understanding that you have a special opportunity to confound the wisdom of this world and to have joy in your pain. If by God's grace you were saved and given the calling to glorify God in an, in an unequally yoked marriage, will live out your calling, glorifying God in that what is the utmost difficult calling that a Christian can have, knowing that you're storing up for yourselves treasures in heavens that many of us will not, not ever have. If by God's grace you're saved to preach the gospel on the streets, we'll preach the gospel just as Paul did, the chief of all sinners preaching to other sinners. If by God's grace you've been called to minister in the church of God, we'll do so as Paul tells Timothy to continue to fight the good fight, keeping faith in a good conscience. If there's any here who are not in the grace of Christ, which unfortunately I'm sure that there are, remember that the blasphemous murderer Saul of Tarsus was saved for the great purpose of showing just how powerful the blood of Christ is to save. There's none too far gone that God's right hand is not strong enough to save. And so your calling is to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ right now and be saved. That way, instead of fearing God on Judgment Day, you can worship God with, a, with a, clean, a clean, clear conscience, with joy. And you can worship with us as we sing these songs to God and that you'll be able to read this, this very text in verse 17 that we're going to come back and read for the benediction. You can read a doxology of worship to God your Savior by repentance and faith in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Well, Father, 
we are not thankful as we should be. God, we do not praise you, we do not honor you, we do not serve you as we should. God, you have saved the worst of sinners. You have saved the lowliest of people. Lord, and that is us. Lord, and we think too highly of ourselves, Lord. We do not give you the thanks. Even if we give it to you with our lips, Lord, we don't give it to you with our hearts. We don't worship you with our lives. Our lives are not laid down as worship before you as they should be, Lord. As I've said to everyone, Lord, I say to myself, Lord, remind us that the Spirit of God is in us. Lord, stir us up to not quench the Spirit of God in us, but to live by faith, trusting that the Spirit of God is mighty and powerful to work, even, to work in even the lowliest of sinners. Lord, give us the faith that we need. We thank you for this grace. We thank you for your word that reminds us of the abundant grace that we have in Christ Jesus. Lord, stir us up to be your people. Set us apart, Lord, to be a holy people for your name's sake. We ask you, we beg of you, in the name of your Son, amen.